Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Fox Lake, Illinois. Fox Lake is a village in northern Illinois located about an hour northwest of Chicago and 15 minutes south of the border with Wisconsin. Fox Lake incorporated in December 1906 under a village form of government with an elected village president who is also recognized as the mayor. The village is bordered on three sides by Pastakey, Nippersink, and Fox Lakes, three of the bodies that form part of the Chain O'Lake system. All 15 lakes in the system are connected to one another and formed by a glacier. The area was first explored during the 17th century by the French. Early in the 20th century, there were only a few hundred residents. During the summer season, however, the population would reach an estimated 20,000 people, and at its peak, the area had 50 hotels and 2,000 cottages. Fox Lake is a vacation destination where swimming, boating, jet skiing, and wakeboarding are popular activities. And fishing is a year-round activity with anglers pulling more than 700,000 fish out of the water every year. But in 2015, the village of Fox Lake became a key destination for law enforcement from across the nation when they were tasked with catching a killer and solving a whodunit. The answer left everyone reeling. According to a CNN special report, on Tuesday, September 1st, 2015, Fox Lake Police Lieutenant Joe Glinowitz radioed dispatch at 7.52 a.m. He said he was in pursuit of three men, two white and one black, at the old abandoned concrete factory on the outskirts of town. Dispatch asked if he wanted additional patrol cars to meet him there, and he said no. Three minutes later, Lieutenant Glinowitz told dispatch that the men took off for the swamp behind the concrete factory, and when dispatch again asked if he wanted additional units, he said yes. Three squad cars responded to his location and arrived within six minutes. They parked on a gravel road behind Joe's squad car, but did not see him. He also did not answer when they called out to him, and he was not responding on his shoulder-mounted microphone or his cell phone. The Fox Lake officers began looking around the marshy area surrounding the swamp. There were tons of trees, Kathy, and super thick brush made it really slow going for you to be able to walk anywhere. So the officers were proceeding very slowly, making sure they weren't missing anything as they searched the area. As they were doing this, the officers heard a very distinctive bang, followed soon after by another. They all recognized the sound of a gunshot and instinctively took off into the marshy woods and down the hill toward the swamp. There, the officers found Joe surrounded by thick brush and radioed dispatch at 8.09 a.m., 17 minutes after his first call to dispatch. Officer down. Lieutenant Joe Glinowitz had been shot twice. One bullet went in just above his right hip that never penetrated because it was caught in his bulletproof vest. 
The second bullet avoided his vest and went into his chest. By the time officers arrived, he had died. About 200 feet from where the officers found Joe's body, some of his gear was found scattered along a path. Investigators first found his canister of pepper spray with the safety tab pulled out. Further down, they found Joe's expandable police baton. And then beyond that, they found his eyeglasses. But investigators could not find his service revolver. The Fox Lake Police Department issued an alert. They now suspected the three men Joe was following had taken his gun and were armed and dangerous. A massive search for the three suspects was organized. The search zone was two square miles around the site where Joe's body was found. Schools were put on lockdown and residents were urged to stay inside with locked doors. The manhunt involved approximately 400 law enforcement officers from local agencies, as well as the ATF and the FBI. Officers used ATVs, helicopters, drones, and horses in their search. Officers also set up a human perimeter to prevent the suspects from slipping out of the woods unseen. FBI agents from the Behavioral Analysis Unit assisted with determining possible motives and or suspects. They also obtained Joe's cell phones and computer for analysis. Joe's missing service revolver was found about an hour after he was found. Because of the thick, marshy brush, it was not easily seen, but it was actually found only two and a half feet from Joe's head. The search scene was treacherous for several reasons. Obviously, the terrain was one of them. But on the first day of September, it was also scorching hot and the humidity around the swamp was in excess of 80 percent. Dozens of police officers were passing out and the search canines were being doused with water to help keep them going. The search was halted once night fell and a helicopter with heat seeking equipment was used once law enforcement personnel had cleared the area. However, the helicopter did not pick up any heat signatures. Somehow, these suspects had eluded the dragnet and escaped. 52-year-old Charles Joseph Glinowitz was an Illinois native who graduated from Antioch Community High School and went on to earn his bachelor's and master's degrees from Kaplan University. Joe served in the U.S. Army from 1981 to 2007, where he earned numerous service awards, including the Meritorious Service Medal and the Army Commendation Medal. He joined the Fox Lake Police Department in 1985 and continued in the Army serving as a reservist. He was given the nickname G.I. Joe due to his military bearing. He was muscular with that Army haircut that you always think of, the buzz cut. Right. At the police department, Joe worked many different assignments, including as a canine officer, field training officer, and a member of the SWAT team. He was promoted to sergeant and then to his current position as lieutenant. Joe first began working with the Fox Lake Police Explorer Post in 1986. And Kath, he was dedicated to training these kids to enter a career in law enforcement or the military. Yeah, he loved his Explorer kids. Joe actually became the leader of the Explorer Post the following year. And he had huge success with the program that was absolutely a testament to how much he cared about these kids. Mm -hmm. They earned multiple awards and accolades in various state and even nationwide competitions. Kath, I read somewhere that they did a lot of cool things, like they reenacted crime scenes. They went shooting. You know, he was literally training them as they were going into law enforcement the next year. Like he was really into it. He actually did sniper training. Exactly. 
And in fact, Kath, Joe saw hundreds of his explorers that he trained enter into law enforcement and military careers throughout the time he ran this program. He must have been so proud of those kids. Oh, I bet. I think police explorer scout programs in general are awesome. Right. It's that sense of discipline that teenage kids need. Totally. Joe was well known and deeply loved in the Fox Lake community. He was known as a hard worker who poured his heart and soul into everything he did. Even though he was out of the army, when he wasn't in uniform, he was always wearing fatigues and combat boots, and he had a smile for everyone. He was survived by his wife of 26 years, Melody, and his four sons. And Kath, this happened, as we mentioned, on September 1st. He was supposed to be retiring at the end of the month. And his wife actually said he had been eligible to retire the day before he was killed. Oh, wow. I read that when they went to tell her the news, like she just completely collapsed, went hysterical and vomited, which natural. Yeah. Despite the fear and uncertainty about the three suspects eluding police, more than 1,500 people gathered at the vigil the day after Joe was killed. Joe's wife, Melody, was on the stage with their four sons and she spoke to the crowd. She said, Joe was my best friend, my world, my hero, the love of my life for the last 26 and a half years. He was the most wonderful, caring and loving father to our boys. My world got a little bit smaller with his passing and he will truly be missed by all of us. Members of the community immediately started calling 911 to report suspicious sightings. The same night as the vigil, so this was the day after Joe was killed, a call came into 911 from a woman who said she was pulled over on the side of the road when two men in hoodies, one white and one black, approached her car and asked for a ride to Wisconsin. She was scared and ran down the road to get away from them, so they jumped into her car and drove away. Nearly a hundred state and local law enforcement officers set up roadblocks for five hours searching the area, along with 11 police canines and three air units. But they didn't find their suspects or her car. So, Kath, what I thought was really interesting is on the same day that this woman called 911, they also had somebody report that the morning of Joe's murder, this person had seen two white men and one black man walking through the streets of the village. Now, it's a small town, 10,000 people maybe, and detectives were able to identify these men within just a few hours, so the police brought them in for questioning. The men said, hey, no, 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 we had nothing to do with this. We're innocent. We were just having breakfast together. That's all we did. So the men wrote down their alibis, and the police started investigating to see if they were actually telling the truth. Turns out they were. One of the men said that he had gone to an ATM to get cash for the breakfast. The officers went to the ATM. Sure enough, there was a video they found that gave the time that he was getting the cash just before Joe was killed. The officers also went to the diner where they said they had breakfast, talked to the waitresses, and sure enough, one waitress remembered them because they had given her such a nice tip. So maybe that's the lesson here. I actually think it is. (laughs) If you need an alibi, give a big tip. In addition to the waitress being an eyewitness, there was also a credit card slip they found that gave the time that the men were there, which gave them a completely ironclad alibi for having anything to do with Joe's murder. So the police continued to search vigorously for the three suspects Joe had identified. Six days after his death, Lieutenant Joe Glinowitz's funeral was held on Labor Day, September 7, 2015. He was lauded as a hero who died doing his job in a dangerous environment, and his picture was hung in storefront windows in Fox Lake. Thousands of people, including hundreds of law enforcement officers and officials from around the country, attended the funeral. 
His funeral procession was 18 miles long, and hundreds of people stood along the procession route to honor him as a fallen hero and show their support. 18 miles. That is incredible. You know what it made me think about, though, Kath, is back in 1998, I was working in Washington, D.C., and there was a policeman and a detective who were killed in the Capitol when a gunman came through. Were they Capitol Police officers? One of them was. The other was assigned security to one of the ranking House leaders. So what happened, and I remember this too, because we were in the House office buildings, which is not in the Capitol building itself. We were all put on lockdown. But of course, we're in there thinking we're sitting ducks in the office. Mm -hmm. That would be scary. It was. It was super scary. But basically what happened is a man entered through the east side of the Capitol, which was typically reserved for staff and members of Congress. And they had the metal detectors they had to go through, of course. So the officer, and Kath, I think his name was Officer Chestnut, he turned his head to see who had set off the metal detector. And as he did, the man brought up a gun and shot him in the head. Now, the reason this is usually a staff and member entrance is that that's where the House leadership offices were located. So as he walked past the metal detectors, this, you know, little foyer where it was, the man came across one of the offices and opened the door to go in. So this was the House majority whip. That was his office. And because of his branket leadership, he had a Capitol Police detective assigned to him for security. The detective heard the gunshots go off and so told all the staff members in this room to get behind their desks. As he was doing this, The gunman came in and the detective pulled his weapon to defend the staffers who were in there and he was killed as well. This was tragic and it was so personal. It felt like such a violation. I mean, you know, I've talked about my time in D.C. and I I love the Capitol building and I felt just like that was my home. Mm -hmm. Right. These two men were given the honor of laying in state in the Capitol Rotunda. That is an honor that is only used typically for presidents, high ranking senators or cabinet members, members of Congress. But they lay in state so that people can go by and give their condolences. And these were the first police officers to have this honor. And Officer Chestnut was the first black person to have this honor. Oh, interesting. I remember standing outside. It was July in Washington, D.C. Heat and humidity, just waiting for these two hearses to drive past. So any man who had been in the military, of course, saluted. The rest of us put our hands over our hearts. And just this energy that went through you as they drove past. It was so heartbreaking. And I mean, I can't even use all the adjectives that I have in my mind. But that's what this reminded me of. I'm sure they were going through something very similar. Right. The funeral included a helicopter flyover and a rifle volley. People tied ribbons around their trees and posted signs throughout the town in his honor. Then Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner, who also attended the funeral, ordered all state and federal flags at government buildings to be flown at half-staff. One week after Joe's death, authorities had disclosed very few details about the case and no additional details about the suspects other than their race and gender. They did reveal, however, that the woman who called police the day after Joe's death, this was the night of the vigil, and reported seeing two men stealing her car, was a fraud. She admitted to making up the entire story, and she was arrested. Almost two years later, Kath, she was convicted of falsifying a police report, placed on probation, and ordered to pay $20,000 in restitution. Without any additional suspects, detectives were at a loss as to who might want to kill Joe, so they pulled his personnel file from headquarters and looked through it because they were hoping to glean possible avenues to pursue. So, Kath, Joe's personnel file was 264 pages. I actually almost died when I read that. That is one hell of a personnel file. Even for 30 years on the job. Oh, yeah. That's a hell of a personnel file. 
as you would expect with all we've talked about with the Explorer program and others, it contained quite a few accolades for his service to the Fox Lake community. However, what really shocked investigators was the secret life Joe seemed to have been able to hide from most people, with the exception of his captain and the chief of police. Beginning in 1988, there were several drunk driving instances in which Joe was pulled over in either Fox Lake or nearby town, asleep at the wheel with the car still running. I read that, actually. It's a miracle that nobody was killed. And on these times when the engine was still running, Kath, the officers who pulled over to check weren't even able to wake him up. But as you can imagine, in each instance, officers took him home rather than arrest him. Mm -hmm. I read that, too. There was also, Kath, a complaint by a dispatcher who reported Joe said he wanted to put three bullets in her chest because she was annoying him. And he actually brought a gun into the dispatch room and repeatedly like cocked and uncocked it in front of her. Also in his personnel file, there was a reference to a lawsuit against the Fox Lake Police Department that was filed in 2003 by a former police officer who said Joe pressured her to perform sexual favors on him five times in the year 2000, which this is 15 years prior to his death. He implied, apparently, that she had to comply with this in order to keep her job, and Joe was suspended for 30 days. Now, Kath, just as a side note, her lawsuit eventually wound up getting dismissed. What I read is that she had not responded to discovery on time. I read that it was her attorney who had not responded. Right. But her attorney's actions are going to be imputed to her in a lawsuit. And so I have no idea, really, honestly, whether the attorney screwed up and didn't respond. But to get a case dismissed for failure to respond to discovery, you basically have to not respond. There has to be a motion to compel. And then they violate the order compelling discovery. So her case was dismissed. And despite her attorney's efforts, apparently, to get it back on the docket, the judge said no. Some of the most serious accusations in Joe's personnel file were detailed in a letter that members of the Fox Lake Police Department anonymously sent to the mayor at the time, which was Cindy Irwin. This letter was sent in February of 2009, six years before Joe's death. And the letter outlined almost two pages of complaints about him. And the officer said that morale within the department was at an all-time low. Now, I had not seen a copy of this letter. Did you see a copy of the letter? I did. So it wasn't signed by anyone, but it said we are members of the police department? Correct. Okay, so take with a grain of salt. We don't know. But according to the letter, Joe had been suspended six times for an inappropriate sexual relationship with a subordinate. The letter also said officers were warned by suspects whom they'd arrested that they should drop the arrest because they were friends of Joe. Now, the letter accused Joe of a number of things. Now, one of them, apparently, he liked to grab women's breasts at Christmas parties. <laughs> and apparently, officers were confronted by him in public about issues that were contained in their personnel file. Like, so he was supposedly violating their privacy rights. You know, one of the things not part of this letter, Kathy, that was in his personnel file was a letter from his chief that said the chief found out that Joe had told the chief's assistant that Joe should have administrator access to their computer system. The chief had done no such thing. And Joe's response was, well, no, I thought you told me you wanted to because you were concerned about, you know, not being able to get in the system sometimes if the people who were allowed to have it weren't around. And the chief said, 
No, I absolutely did not. The chief did not even give himself access to these files because he wanted to make sure it was locked down and there were such a few number of people who had it to diminish the ability for people to leak this information. So wait, the chief had no access to these files, but Joe came in and got access from the chief's assistant. Correct. Saying the chief wanted him to have it. That is ridiculous. I know. Yeah. They also allege things like he walked out on a $300 bar tab. He was thrown out of bars by bouncers for being too drunk. He also used his squad car for personal errands, Kath, including once taking his family on vacation to Wisconsin, driving his squad car. Maybe it was really important that vacation. Maybe it was. He also allowed civilians to fill their cars up at the police gas station. Thank you, taxpayer dollars. Exactly. And he also supposedly got a tattoo while on duty. <laughs> Using a free certificate that had been donated to the police station for yeah. like some sort of auction. Now, Kath, what was interesting is that the personnel file or at least I didn't see it, contained no information whether or not the mayor took any action when this anonymous letter came in. According to Lake County Major Crime Task Force Commander George Falenko, Joe's personnel file actually did not immediately change the way local authorities were looking at his murder case. Instead, it led them to develop another theory, and that was if he was having issues with women and female co-workers, was there something more nefarious out there than they realized? And was there a vendetta involving Joe's treatment of one of the females that was listed in his personnel file? Now, around the same time that investigators learned about his personnel issues, Lake County Coroner Dr. Thomas Rudd made a statement to the press. He said, quote, I can't rule out a suicide. I can't rule out an accident. I can't rule in a homicide, end quote. Basically, Dr. Rudd said all possible options were still on the table until the crime task force completed its work. As you can imagine, the Glinowitz family was pissed and they adamantly denied their husband and father would kill himself. Joe was actively applying to chief of police jobs in nearby communities and the family was in the process of planning several vacations. The coroner statements also angered the man in charge of the investigation, Commander Falenko, who in response to Dr. Rudd's statement said that it did not make any sense that Joe committed suicide. He was suffering from two gunshot wounds, making suicide a very unlikely option. The task force continued to look at potential suspects from Joe's history. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. (laughs) So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, 
Go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Two months after the death of Lieutenant Joe Glinowitz, the Lake County Major Crime Task Force held a press conference to announce the results of their investigation. Commander Falenko told a group of reporters that their extensive investigation had concluded with an overwhelming amount of evidence that Joe Glinowitz's death was, in fact, a carefully staged suicide. And Kath, I saw the press conference. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. Uh-uh. This room of reporters went into a shocked silence, like it was a momentary, like just nothing. And then they all started shouting questions at him. Oh, I could totally see that. And it was like absolute chaos. They were accusing the commander and the other members of the task force of lying to the community for months and months about what really happened to Joe. Up until that time, everybody thought that Joe had been killed. Commander Falenko insisted to the reporters that he never misled the public and that investigators 100% believe from day one that Joe's death was a homicide. He said that the task force knew that there was going to be a lot of questions about this because rumor of a suicide had actually been circulating in the community for about a month. But they also knew that it was their responsibility to make sure that their conclusions were correct before making any sort of announcement to the public. And as you can imagine, This news devastated Joe's family, friends, supporters, and community members. I cannot imagine being in his wife's shoes or his son's shoes. I really hope that they actually told the family before they held the press conference, but something makes me think that they didn't. Well, I don't know. I mean, what what makes you think they didn't? I feel like it might have leaked to the press before they would have had a chance to do the press conference. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like they read it, word leaked out, and then there was the press conference. Right. And they probably didn't want that to happen. I feel sorry for his family. Oh, I absolutely do. Horrible. And his kids. He still had two who were in high school. Can't imagine what that could have been like. No, totally hear you. So after nine weeks of investigation, Commander Falenko said authorities believe they finally knew exactly what happened on September 1st, 2015. They said Joe was not who they thought and his death was no accident. According to Falenko, a little over a month after Joe's death, 
the FBI reached out with information they had recovered from his personal cell phone. As we said previously, the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit took possession of it, and they were able to recover deleted information. Kath, they handed the task force 6,500 pages of recovered messages. These messages revealed multiple crimes arranged by Joe. Among these offenses, they discovered that Joe had orchestrated a bogus marriage for one of his sons so that he could get a larger stipend from the army because the army gave married men larger stipends. Now, this was minor compared to the other stuff. They were most interested in messages that indicated Joe may have tried to arrange a hit on a newly hired Fox Lake administrator, Ann Marin. Five months before Joe's death, they found a Facebook message to an unidentified woman that he was, quote, being forced to retire by the new village administrator. Work life has been a living hell the last two months, close to entertaining a meeting with a mutual acquaintance of ours with the word white in their nickname, end quote. Detectives confirmed that white is a code for a high-ranking gang member. Who knew? I know, who knew? Authorities said they interviewed the woman Joe sent the Facebook message to, and she said, yes, Joe wanted to hire a gang member to kill Ann Marin. Investigators actually located the person that they think Joe was referring to, you know, like he was trying to recruit for the hit, and they interviewed him in his attorney's office. He, of course, said, nope, I have no idea what you're talking about. He totally denied any knowledge or any participation in anything like that. And of course, this sort of led to a dead end. There was no additional evidence for the police to pursue any kind of conspiracy allegation. But Joe was actually hiding a different secret, and it was about to be exposed to everyone. Anne Marin was the first administrator who focused on the village's budget, and being new in her position, she wanted to have an in-depth knowledge of how all of the village's departments were operating. She had already done several, and next on her list was the Police Explorer Program run by Joe. The day before his death, on August 31, 2015, Marin went to the Explorer Clubhouse to get a feel for the program and what she saw surprised her. There were a lot of boxes stacked throughout the clubhouse. Kath, in the pictures, I'm not sure where they had room for any of the Explorer Scouts to be in there because it was just wall-to-wall boxes. When Anne opened these boxes, she found they all contained military surplus items. Military gear, riot helmets, gas masks, inserts for bulletproof vests, radio holders, on and on and on. So Anne went up to Joe and said, hey, do you have an inventory of everything that's here in the clubhouse? Can you get me that list by two o'clock tomorrow? And he said, of course I can. Joe immediately sent a text to his chief of police that said, quote, she has now demanded a complete inventory of Explorer Central and a financial report, FML, which stands for F my life. And it's funny, Kathy, on the CNN report, Ann Marin was interviewed and she said she was shocked when she saw what Joe had sent to the chief in that text message because she said her conversation was, hey, do you have an inventory list? Yes, ma'am. Can you get it to me by tomorrow? Yes, ma'am. And then she left. And she said there was no animosity. There was no demand. There was nothing like that. But clearly, Joe was saying it a different way. Exactly. Joe also exchanged text messages that same day with his friend and the mayor of Fox Lake, Donnie Schmidt. Joe texted that he was only about a third of the way done with the inventory Ann Marin wanted, and he was going to get his ass handed to him the next day for not being done with it. And Kath, there was no information that I saw that showed if Mayor Schmidt responded. 
According to Task Force member Detective Cavelli, investigators learned the equipment in the boxes was all acquired from a military surplus program that was intended to benefit police officers, not young people in a club program. But were all these boxes that potentially improperly acquired surplus items really behind Joe's death? No. As investigators read through the 6,500 pages of recovered text, they found messages that indicated Joe had been using the Police Explorer program bank accounts for about seven years. So in June of 2015, just three months before his death, Joe sent a text to an unknown individual who detectives later identified as his wife, Melody, that said, quote, use the Explorer account for the flight, $624.70, end quote. They found another message to another individual who was later identified as Joe's son that said, quote, you are borrowing from that other account and other is in quotes. When you get back, you'll have to start dumping money into that account or you will be visiting me in jail. And jail is capitalized with two exclamation points. The 1600 and the 777 all came from there, end quote. Another text from Joe to his son said, quote, so if called on the carpet, I can say we give our explorers and advisors loans from time to time if it is needed, and this is proof of it being paid back. You get where I'm coming from? This village administrator hates me and the explorer program. This situation right here would give her the means to crucify me if it were discovered. Compound this with if I was selected for chief of Antioch. I would be leaving here and would have to turn this account over to someone else, end quote. Commander Falenko reported that Joe used the Explorer's bank account as his personal account. A lot of what the money was spent on was clearly not intended for any of the Explorer Scout activities. It was spent on gym memberships, Starbucks, adult websites, plane tickets, and mortgage payments. Investigators also discovered that Joe forged signatures on documents. So these were documents that were requisitions for federal surplus equipment, as well as official police explorer documents. So after investigators confirmed that Joe had been embezzling money for at least seven years from the police explorer program, and he believed that his crimes were about to be exposed, they were certain that his death had been a very carefully staged suicide. So Kath, embezzlement is when somebody has legitimate authority to be accessing a bank account, but they take money that they're not entitled to have. And so what I read, and you correct me if I'm wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> you're like, you're always wrong. <laughs> Don't give me that power. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably said that to the wrong person. <laughs> but he would take money and replace money. And you know what? I'm sure this started out so stupidly and insidiously, like he probably bought himself a cup of Starbucks or something dumb. And I'm not justifying what he did because what he did obviously is bad. Yes. But my understanding is that the money that was actually missing when he died, I think it was like... It's like seven to $10,000, something, something around that area. Yeah. Like it was illegal and he would have lost his job and his reputation, obviously, and possibly been prosecuted. But what I'm saying is... It wasn't the nefarious scenario that was being portrayed in the press, that he was just taking money, taking money, taking money... And and never putting money back in. Truly, he was using it as his own ATM machine with overdraft protection, right? right? So the investigators knew that Joe's image and his persona in the community were everything to him, and he decided it was better to go out as a hero. This narrative supported how they found him and what they found at the crime scene. So going back to the morning of Joe's death on September 1st, 2015, he was heading to work at the Explorer Clubhouse. 
he stopped at the local gas station, Quick Mart, and purchased two packs of cigarettes. So, Kath, I read that this was his daily routine. And so their theory was like, oh, you know, he's just maintaining the routine so that nothing is suspicious leading up to the suicide. As a side note, it's my dad's daily routine also. (laughs) His big trip on a daily basis is to this local smoke shop where he buys like cigars and cigarettes because it's important that after 40 years of not smoking, he only smoked on Christmas and the 4th of July for the last 40 years, he took up smoking again. And as a consequence, my mother also smokes now. I go into their house and it smells like a bar. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, she's always taken good care of the house. Yes. And now, like, I go in and I'm like, dang. Like, I I literally feel like I'm in a bar. Like, they're in their mid-80s. They don't care where they smoke. And so I don't bust their chops so much. But holy hell, it smells bad. And what's funny is, again, it's been 40 years. So I do not know how they have ashtrays. When we were little kids, obviously, you're broke as a kid. But we used to buy them like coffee cups and ashtrays as gifts. (laughs) That was sort of like the go-to. Let's go to TG&Y and buy mom an ashtray. Oh my God, TG&Y, holy crap. But also my mom was super into Waterford Crystal. And so, you know, her closest friends like Mrs. K or Flo, they would get her nice Waterford Crystal ashtrays. (laughs) And so it's like, here we are 40 years later. And I was like, wow, she still has the Waterford ashtrays. <laughs> like you, I noticed the janky ones have been thrown away. But of course. Yeah. Hey, she's at a point in her life where it's all high class. Yeah. So anyway, back to Joe and his trip into work. He drove the route to the community center where the Explorer Clubhouse was located and had told his colleagues, obviously, that he was going there instead of the police station because he had to finish the inventory of the equipment that Ann Marin wanted. But when detectives looked at his GPS from his squad car that morning, it showed that Joe drove past the community center and went straight to the abandoned concrete factory. Now, we wanted to put in audio of Joe's call into dispatch, but the quality of it was so low that it was really kind of unintelligible. It was Mm -hmm. hard to understand. But the point that we wanted to convey with this audio was that there was no sense of urgency, anything in Joe's voice when he made this call to dispatch. And it wasn't even like, oh, he's a veteran cop. He, of course, is used to this. There wasn't even any tension in his voice. There was no tension. But again, he but he's a consummate professional. But there was no sense of urgency. And when the dispatcher asked the second time if he wanted them to send back up to his location, he said, yeah, go ahead and send somebody. Right. It wasn't urgent. And he didn't initiate it either. It wasn't I'm pursuing them into the swamp. Send back up. So as we said, Joe first called dispatch at 7.52 a.m. about the three men he was pursuing. The GPS on his squad car showed that he actually arrived at the abandoned concrete factory's gate at 7.25 a.m. The FBI actually found this discrepancy within the first few days of the investigation, but without any information indicating that Joe's death was a suicide, task force detectives continued their search for answers. According to Lake County Coroner Dr. Thomas Rudd, the first thing he noticed about Joe's body was that his uniform was in what he called roll call order. Dr. Rudd said what he meant was that Joe's uniform shirt was tucked in properly and not askew, and his pants were clean except for a little mud at the knees. And the Kevlar vest was in its proper position, even though oftentimes a struggle will shift the vest. Dr. Rudd said that the first bullet was fired from the distance of three to six inches from Joe's body, and the impact was absorbed first by his cell phone and then his vest. It was not fatal, but it would have been extremely painful. Commander Falenko actually equated it with being hit in the side with a sledgehammer. That's more than just painful. Yeah, I know. 
And it actually, calf caused a four inch by four inch bruise on Joe's skin. And Dr. Rudd also pointed out that there were no defensive wounds or bruises other than what I just described as a result of the first bullet. So the fatal bullet wound was fired two inches from the top of his bulletproof vest, meaning he pulled his vest away and fired at a downward 40 degree angle into his heart. Although the bullet did not strike his heart, but rather it tore a pulmonary artery. And so he died from catastrophic blood loss. The second bullet actually never left Joe's body, but the coroner was able to see its trajectory and where it would have left an exit wound. Investigators learned in an interview with Melody Glinowitz that her husband had an extremely high tolerance for pain, and Joe knew the existence of a second bullet would make detectives dismiss the idea of suicide. They knew that Joe had fired the first bullet into his cell phone, knowing the cell phone in his vest would lessen the impact. And then Joe placed the service revolver under the top of his vest, firing downward into his own heart. And Kath, there were still a couple of loose ends that came up at this press conference that we had talked about. One of the questions that came up was, why was Joe's service revolver located two and a half feet above his head if he had put his gun behind his bulletproof vest and shot himself? Because I think the coroner was expecting like the gun would have been underneath him. Correct. And it really came down to when the coroner determined that he had actually shot his pulmonary artery and not his heart because a bullet directly to the heart would have killed him instantly. But the pulmonary artery would have taken one to two minutes for the blood loss to kill him. So Joe would have had time to drop his gun and then stagger a few feet away from Mm -hmm. it. One of the other things that came up was what about Joe's gear that we had mentioned police found a few hundred feet from where his body was found? And this goes back to his Explorer post because they actually did competitions for crime scene staging. So Joe had a ton of experience with it. Where he took his Explorer scouts to practice was at this old abandoned concrete factory. Ah. They also did sniper training in the area. So Joe knew the layout of this entire area where he was found. So they basically were like, he staged it. No big deal. Yeah. The behavioral analysis unit with the FBI concurred that they believed it was a staged crime scene in part because there was no sign of Joe being dragged after the initial shot to where he was eventually found. And there were no physical signs that he fought for his life. And you would expect a longtime military man and police officer to fight for their life. Yeah. Once news of this betrayal came to light, Numerous organizations that had raised or donated money for the Glenowitz family demanded that it be returned. I understand why. That's just so hard to hear. Oh, totally. Like, I'm still like his kids and his wife. Like, it just kills me. It breaks my heart, honestly, for them. Tributes and memorials were quickly removed and the largest, which had been constructed in front of the Fox Lake Police Department, was vandalized. So, Kat, they had this big memorial sign that used his nickname G.I. Joe and vandals turned it into G.I. Joke. And the Washington, D.C. based Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund said Joe's name would no longer be etched onto a marble monument dedicated to fallen officers. In addition, new leadership was brought into the Fox Lake Police Department. Catherine, all was said and done. The investigation included members of the Lake County Major Crime Task Force, the FBI, and of course their Behavioral Analysis Unit, the ATF, Secret Service, Homeland Security, and the U.S. Marshals. In total, 
150 investigators spent over 25,000 hours investigating this case and over 430 leads were followed up on. It was said by the CNN report that over 250 pieces of evidence were collected and submitted to local and federal crime labs for analysis and thousands of pages of financial documents and over 40,000 emails were reviewed. Further investigation uncovered that Joe may have had help from his son and wife. One of his sons was under investigation after a series of text messages were found. However, investigators did not have any evidence that the son had prior knowledge that the money came from the Explorer program's account. On January 27, 2016, so just five months after Joe's death, his wife Melody was indicted on four counts of dispersing charitable funds without authority and for personal benefit from the Police Explorer Fund and two counts of money laundering. She pled not guilty to these charges. Six years later, on February 18, 2022, Melody accepted a plea deal and was convicted on deceptive practice, a Class 4 felony in the state of Illinois. The remainder of her charges were dismissed, and two months later, she was sentenced to 24 months of probation rather than jail time. Since her husband's death, Melody has been trying to receive her late husband's pension and death benefits. The Fox Lake Fire and Police Commission meeting minutes from the October 15, 2022 meeting, so just six months ago, said the matter was still pending. The matter was not mentioned in the minutes from the subsequent five months. In the end, the Explorer post was disbanded. In an interview with CNN, Detective Cavelli said Joe committed the ultimate betrayal of his fellow officers because he dishonored his badge. It was a slap in the face to all of them. The people who stood on the procession route and attended the memorials, the people who went to the police department and dropped off cards, flowers, and donated to the memorial, and all of the police officers who traveled across the country to attend his funeral. And it was all for a lie. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much. I know we had a short closing last time, but just like last time, we don't have a lot to say. <laughs> short closing today. Done, exactly. son. <laughs> you stole my Chattanooga line. Exactly. If you aren't following us, please do. We're on at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at Killer Destinations Pod on Kathy's favorite TikTok. Mm-hmm. And leave a five-star review when you have a chance on Apple. Thanks and so much. Exactly. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.